Welcome to the Dean's Spotlight on West Point's Intellectual Engine. I am Brigadier General Shane Reeves, the Dean at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Throughout the year, I will highlight the academic initiatives that drive West Point's intellectual engine. Through a series of discussions, we will make even our most complex initiatives accessible to broad audiences and give you an inside view to our interdisciplinary work being applied throughout the world. Today, I'm thrilled to host Colonel Chris Corpella and Professor Hitoshi Nasu for this episode, where we discuss the role of artificial intelligence on the modern battlefield. Their remarkable and different backgrounds coming together to work on this important topic is a great example of the interdisciplinary efforts that are happening all over our academy. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So before we get started, I'd like to take a quick moment to introduce each of you. I'll start with Colonel Chris Corpella. Colonel Corpella is an associate professor and director of West Point's Robotics Research Center. He's deployed twice to Iraq and once to Afghanistan in various command and staff positions. As a researcher, he has coordinated research projects and grants across the United States Department of Defense, academia, and industry in the field of robotics, autonomous systems, and artificial intelligence. He is an APGAR Award winner, which is West Point's highest teaching award, and an Andrew Carnegie Fellow. Colonel Corpella has testified at the United Nations as part of the United States delegation to the group of governmental experts on lethal autonomous weapon systems in Geneva, Switzerland. He has authored and co-authored over 40 scientific and professional papers, including journal and conference papers, as well as book chapters in the field of autonomous systems and robotics. Colonel Corpella is a Washington internship for students of engineering fellow and senior member of the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers. His first textbook titled Aerial Manipulation was released for print in September 2017. Of course, and most impressively, he's my West Point classmate from the great class of 1996. That's impressive, actually. Let me turn to Professor Hitoshi Nasu. Professor Nasu joined the West Point Department of Law in September 2021, and he is a member of the Lieber Institute for Law and Land Warfare and the Robotics Research Center. Professor Nasu brings a wealth of expertise in the field of international law, with many years of research and teaching experience in Australia, Japan, and the United Kingdom. He has extensive publications on a range of military legal affairs, including a world-class body of scholarship on advanced military technologies and the law of armed conflict. His prior experience in bringing together military operators, legal practitioners, and scientists has helped drive this interdisciplinary work with Colonel Corpella and his team at the Robotic Research Center. His forthcoming book, The Concept of Security in International Law, is particularly relevant to today's episode. So, with that as our background, I think this raises the first question. How did a robotics expert and an international law expert link up to collaborate on research related to artificial intelligence on the modern battlefield. Chris. So since 2014, we've been working with lethal autonomous weapon systems, and I realized the need to have a legal expert since this, this area is so multidisciplinary. So I contacted colleagues in the law department, and we set up a meeting to get this collaboration started. And then we met with Colonel Williams and you, sir, for those initial discussions in the law department. So, Hitoshi. How did you, how did you get linked up with this effort? 
Well, I got a phone call or email in the first place. At that time, I was in the UK teaching international law and doing some research on artificial intelligence and that law of conflict. And this chance that is presented to me to work at West Point on this exact project on AI and law and conflict, that was too good an opportunity to miss for me. So I jumped onto it and now I'm working with kind of on various different issues. Well, it's darn a great benefit that you decided to join in this, this effort. How's the collaboration going between you two? It's almost like marriage counseling, right? Or like, how is it, how is it going? Right. So Chris, how is the, how's the collaboration going? Yeah, no. So we've been able to really get, get thought pieces out in terms of blogs. We're working on a paper right now on roles of engagement and then really trying to stay engaged with the DOD AI experts, the chief digital and artificial intelligence office. And they, of course, we want to stay engaged with them, with our international partners, when the different nation states are meeting to, to discuss these topics, typically in Geneva. Yeah. How about the collaboration from your perspective? I think it's going well. It's an occasional conversation. It's like really an occasional frank conversation we have over the coffee break. It, it makes a huge difference. In fact, over the coffee break, we often come up with really interesting ideas we want to pursue with the papers or with the blog post. So I think it's, it's going well. I'd like to highlight your background, Chris, is very STEM heavy. Obviously, Hitoshi, you're a lawyer. Coming together in a, in a place where you drink coffee and bat ideas off each other is, is awesome for me to hear as the dean. But what happens at these coffee breaks that, that makes this collaboration so successful? As Hidoshi mentioned, it is, it is informal. Usually we'll go to, to Grand Hall. The weather's been nice. We can sit out in the tables out there and really just discuss. And often we'll have other faculty may walk up and engage with us because it is a, a high traffic area there in the pedestrian walk. So tell me a little bit about, let me talk to you about individually. How does your research on artificial intelligence and robotics, how is that going in your respective field? So just you individually, Chris, how is, how's it going? What are you doing, I guess, also? My role or my job really is to, to ensure that we are tied in within the, the Department of Defense Science and um, Scientific Research Community, right? Ensuring that we're not stovepiped, that our efforts from the cadets and the faculty are, are supporting real DOD efforts, right? So that's, and then of course we get, we can be funded through these DOD sponsors to bring, and usually I bring in faculty to help the cadets and, and, the, and the civilian and military faculty that we have. So there's a number of efforts. If it's threat recognition, if it's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, if it's what's called SLAM, simultaneous localization and mapping. So trying to help agents understand their environment, right? So there's semantic mapping and semantic understanding. We do a lot of work with how these agents are teaming with soldiers. So lots of, lots of efforts to really provide the best information to the soldier and to really act as a, a teammate in, in executing the mission. So is there an example you can, uh, you can give of where you're, this is happening and contemporaneous with the ongoing conflicts in the world? Or, or any type of security so situation? So a few examples. So one, so the artificial intelligence, the Army Artificial Intelligence Integration Center out in Pittsburgh. So they're, they're nested within the Carnegie Mellon University. And we have an effort with them called Auto Adjust Fire. So we can set up a, a small UAS, unmanned aerial system, commonly known as a drone, to detect where artillery rounds are impacting and then providing corrections back to 
the firing point, just like a human observer, a human forward observer is going to observe those rounds. Can we have the drone do that and then provide those corrections back in a more accurate and expedient manner? Or is this playing out in Ukraine? Absolutely. So we've all read the article of 15-year-old with his commercial drone operating it and and, and calling in for fire, right? So there's a number, number of examples that we see in, in Ukraine right now where, where drones are being used to to call in direct fire and very successfully. Yeah. Let me, let me switch to you, Hitoshi. So give me a little bit of your research background. Sure. Yes. So, uh, so my research has been more about how various military applications of new technologies have had an impact on the law of armed conflict and interacted with that body of law and its operation in the context of military operations. So I, in the past, I dealt with, for example, legal issues arising from military applications of nanotechnology, invisibility technology. Are those, I mean, hold up, are those even real things, invisibility technology? Yes. I mean, what, give, give me some details on invisibility. Absolutely. So it's a kind of an enhanced optical deception technology that makes someone or something completely invisible. In the visible, in the visible and infrared region. So it's like a Harry Potter's invisibility cloak and yeah. a scientist actually working on it. Wow. Okay. And then the nanotechnology. Tell me a little bit about when you say nano, how small are we talking? Sure. Yeah. The nanotechnology itself doesn't create anything small. This is an earring technology that manipulates matters in a, a very small nano sized scale. And through this research on nanotechnology, I anticipated that unmanned aerial vehicles would be miniaturized into mechanically controllable precision munitions. And I would call it a nano air vehicle because the components, even though it's, it's, it's visible, it's not in a nano size, but the nanotechnology is used. And those nano air vehicles are capable of pinpoint attacks against the, the target and causing this effect, but without causing any civilian casualties. So this is really an innovative way of using nanotechnology with unmanned vehicles. So in this convergence between your two fields and disciplines then brings some of the, not just the legal applications, but also some of the theoretical thoughts that you've, you've discussed between invisibility and nano and bring it into the operator or practitioner's world and the application as you plug into the army is that how this is how this has worked you're like basically a holistic approach to some of these new technologies and how they can be applied in a military setting yeah i mean we we can look at the umbrella of emerging technologies and how they're going to change the way that soldiers operate that the tactics and the techniques that we're using now are going to be far different in 5 or 10 years from now right so there's and again it's 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 going to be much more incremental than we think, right? Imagine in the year 2000, right? So 20, 22 years ago, if we sat there then and where we thought we'd be in 2022, it's probably much further than we than we really are, right? So the the, the speed is slower, but with these rapid advances, the speed of change is going to be is going to be faster than it has been. So you think it's accelerating? It's going to be accelerating, absolutely. So let me uh, pivot here a bit too. Really artificial intelligence, autonomy, I read your article. You have a great blog titled Stop the Killer Robot Debate, Why We Need Artificial Intelligence in Future Battlefields. And when I read that, something immediately was triggered in my head, which is there have been attempts for centuries to ban weapons. Mm. So 
Famously, in 1139, Pope Innocent II banned crossbows for violating the principle of chivalry. Obviously, that didn't work. Why? Because crossbows were very effective at piercing armor. Fast forward, 1899, in the Hague Convention and Declaration 4, there was a, a, a complete prohibition on aerial warfare, driven by a belief that with hot air balloons, the dropping of munitions from hot air balloons would result in too much collateral damage. That obviously also failed with the advent of World War I. And then again, in, leading up to World War II, there was a very strong movement to ban the use of airplanes in any type of armed conflict. And obviously that didn't work either. And so as I read your article, there's to some extent, it feels like we're just repeating discussions over from history. And for me, it seems as if this is a losing effort by those who would like to absolutely ban and preemptively ban the use of autonomous weapons or the use of artificial intelligence, because technology always finds its place onto the battle space. But I, I, I just give that as a little bit of background as when I read your article, it immediately made me think about that. How do you all see it when you start to look at the, this effort to, to stop killer robots? Am I, and I might be wrong. It might be actually the ability to do so. So, Chris, I'll go start with you. The in, advances in technology are not, in, in terms of autonomy, in terms of artificial intelligence and machine learning, are not inherently bad. I think that any time they use terms like the weaponization of AI, right, that's a common phrase. And there's so much more to AI and ML than just... MLB yeah. and machine learning. And machine learning, yep. exactly. So artificial intelligence, machine learning. So commonly we'll, we'll refer to them as, as AI and ML. And there's nothing that is inherently bad, right? Are there concerns? Absolutely. In terms of bias and in terms of the adversarial techniques, in terms of reliability and trust, right? So that, of course, that's why the DOD came out with the ethical principles for artificial intelligence to get ahead of, of these concerns, right? That we can build systems that are tested and evaluated and verified and, and, and validated, that they can be reliable, that a soldier can use that system and have a high degree of trust in its use. So there's that, and that's one, that's one small piece. There's many others, and I can go into topics on distinction, which is one that we, we often look at, is how can we identify uniform patterns, right? To try to identify our friends, our coalition partners, a potential enemy combatants, and civilians and leveraging those tools to do that. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Chris, you've had a lot of engagement in really not just on the technical side, but in the and engaging with the international community on this. First as a preliminary question, can you just for those listening, discuss the distinction between artificial intelligence and autonomy? I know that oftentimes right. is is conflated. So can you do that? Sure. And the DOD is actually trying to flesh this out right now, right? So with DOD Directive 3000.09, where it talked about autonomous weapon systems and trying to define what a lethal autonomous weapon system is, there's still ongoing debate. So there, there will have an updated release shortly, but almost trying to separate the two, right? So you can have autonomy can be achieved without artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? So the two are, we'll say, distinct. Autonomy really is the ability to operate without further human input, right? So if I if I want a robot to come into this room and localize, right, and map that room, right, that robot or that agent can operate without instructions from a human. Just like when we sat down at this table, we immediately made a map of this room. We immediately 
understand exactly where we our position and location in this room and trying to get a, a robot to do that is is we can say that that's autonomy and then of course there's there are the various levels of autonomy and most of those apply to the self-driving car industry right so how can a car right operate on a highway right and use lanes use fiducials markers signs street lights stop signs pedestrians other vehicles to help it and its localization, collision avoidance, collision detection, and path planning, right? So that that's autonomy. Now on, on artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? How can a machine mimic human intelligence, right? And we're very, we'll stick with narrow AI, right? General AI, that's maybe another discussion, but most in, in our applications with narrow AI and, and machine learning, we're using graphics processors, right? Multiple, you know, of course, hundreds and thousands of, of, of processing cores to implement a neural network to process data and then infer what those new images are, right? To, or we'll say maybe it could be video, it could be still images and trying to detect or correctly label, is that an apple, is that an orange, right? We see this in, of course, in public discourse and, and the challenges with doing that, right? It, it, it incorrectly, I, I injected an adversarial technique and now instead of a dog, it's a cat. So there are challenges that we realize, but there's also a lot of, there's also many advantages that we can, we can leverage. So let me let me ask you, Hitoshi, back to this this idea or this thought about attempts to historically prohibit technology from getting onto the battle space. There's been ethical and moral arguments made against using technology in warfare. Those in the past that hasn't hasn't worked. Obviously, express positive law attempts to prohibit through international agreements that hasn't worked. There's even been some discussions under customary law using the Martin's Clause to try to prohibit artificial intelligence, the use in the battle space. All of those seem to be to be losing arguments. And so do you see it as even pragmatic or realistic that there could be the stop stoppage of this type of technology to being used in the battle? No, in the contemporary battle space. No, not at all, sir. I see some parallel between this debate about this autonomous weapon system and an earlier debate about the military use of drones. This is about a decade ago, only 10, year, 10 years ago, when we started using drones for precision strikes. And many critics at that time warned about the reckless use of drones for lethal targeting because they argued that the soldiers would not experience the same emotional reaction as they would otherwise do when they used force against the person in front of them. But a decade later now, no one questions the legality of using drones for military purposes. And there's even a scientific evidence later on to suggest that human operators experience the same emotional reaction, even when they're remotely piloting and controlling those drones for diesel targeting. So those critics at that time have now proven to be wrong because their argument was based on mere speculation. And that was what we were concerned when we were following the mainstream media. In the mainstream media, there are lots of commentaries and columns by so-called experts warning the general public about the dangers of autonomous robots. And they typically argue that the, uh, those weapons would be used in indiscriminate one, indiscriminate manner. They would run out of control. They would start killing everyone that, that fits certain descriptions and so on. They're causing the public to fear about this type of weapon. 
because um, all of these allegations are based on mere speculation. So we thought well, we are very concerned about uh, this kind of one-sided view is presented to the public in the mainstream media. And uh, we rarely see any counter-argument informed by actual scientific knowledge and proper understanding of military decision-making. That's why we decided to publish this blog post for the public consumption. Have you seen the movie Terminator? <laughs> well, I mean, that's what has informed me in this debate is the Terminator. A good example, if I can give you, sir, is the Microsoft workers who protested against the company about the proposed involvement in the development of a piece of military equipment with the Department of Defense. Personally, didn't any see, didn't see any problem or ethical issues with this particular piece of equipment. I think it was the augmented reality goggles called HoloLens. But this informed view had a very negative impact on the defense industry as a whole because we we need their cooperation and involvement to make sure that our soldiers will be ready to fight the next war. So, but let me ask you either, if you go with the line of reasoning I started with, which is technology inevitably finds its way onto the battle space, why does it matter if this debate's raging? What's what what's the consequence if if there's a significant percent of the population or of experts who say we're going to stop this, we're going to put in an absolute ban? If you follow what I said, it's going to it's irrelevant. So what's why why engage in the debate? It's a public support we need. So in countries where democratic democratic voice people's voice doesn't matter. They can go ahead and use all sorts of technologies to their advantage. But we in the United States, we value democracy and the people's voice and public views about what we do and how we operate. Without the support of those engineers, those scientists and technologists, we cannot really go ahead to produce the really cutting-edge technologies we need to fight the next fight and win the next war. We need everyone at the table, right? We need academia, right? We need we need government, we need industry. We do not want to alienate any population. We do not want to operate on one side and they're on the other and there's no common ground, right? There's no commander wants to employ a weapon system that cannot be controlled, right? There's no utility in that, right? And so trying to convey those principles, right, that we all abide to, right? Commander's authority, commander's responsibility based on their training and, and our doctrine, right? Those are all things that maybe do not necessarily understand. And we want to try to help inform them. And again, it is trying to, of course, not not engage in warfare if we don't have to, right? If we have, if we have the the ability to defeat the adversary and they know that, then they will not, they will typically not engage with us. And yeah, we just, we need to bring everyone, we need to bring everyone to the table. So when I listen to this, there's a pragmatic component. There's really three parts of this, if I got this right. One is we need everybody at the table to try to dispel potential misperceptions, as well as you need everybody at the table pragmatically to help develop the technology and think through it. And then there's also this, this other part that you triggered in my head, Hitoshi, which is, is the idea of lawfare where certain provisions will be passed in international law, and then those provisions will be followed by law-abiding states and nations. And, but they can also, those provisions can be weaponized against those law-abiding states by those who do not, are not as interested in complying with international law and their international legal obligations, which means that this debate really is an important one so that the law develops in such a way 
that there's enough legal space for the military practitioner to be able to operate successfully in the contemporary battle space from both the United States or any democratic nation. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, yes, for law-abiding nations. Absolutely. So any half measures, um, half we attempt to regulate or restrict or ban that is any type of weapons is likely to cause troubles for law-abiding nations only. And those uh, who do not have any intention to abide by those rules or find a wise to get around those rules, they would take that take advantage of it. And we will be in a disadvantaged position as a result. What's the most valid criticism you've heard so far on the use of either autonomous or or autonomous weapons or the, the implementation of AI into military operations? AI has a variety of different applications across the spectrum of military operations. So there is always a military decision-making, the long process of military decision-making behind it. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand that context in which any AI-based system is going to be used in warfighting. Do you think there's any valid concerns or criticisms of, of behind the campaign? The stop killer robots, as they call it? The concerns of agency, the concerns of no one, at least in the research that we're doing and with our partners, no one is trying to transfer agency to a machine, right? The discussions are always on the machines making the decision, right? The machine is is determining who is engaged and who is not engaged. And that is not anyone that I anyone that I collaborate with, there's no intent there, right? To transfer agency to a machine. Is it a tool? that we can help to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants? Yeah, absolutely. Is it a tool that helps us make better decisions and deliver the appropriate effects? Absolutely. I understand the concerns. Okay, if it's swarming capabilities and race conditions, are there chances algorithms can go wrong and there's going to be a mass casualty event? There's those possibilities. But again, it just goes back to testing and evaluation and verification of these systems and a constant process of ensuring that they are abiding by the, the DoD ethical principles. So let me talk about your joint research. How do you all, how do you two see, and maybe it's not just the two of you, but it's also both of your organizations, your two, very, your center and your institute. How do you see your joint work helping to harness the potential of these technologies in the interest of national security? So I'll, I'll ask you first, Hitoshi. So What we are currently working on is to find and set technical parameters Hmm. that can be programmed into autonomous weapon systems to ensure that their operation will always and fully comply with the legal and policy requirements. The machine's ability to operate lawfully, in other words, its ability to distinguish, for example, legitimate military targets from innocent civilians, is a technical problem. It's a technical problem, not a legal problem. But it requires a legal input to devise a solution to this technical problem. So that's where our collaboration becomes really important. Our project is not about transplanting the law of armed conflict rules books into autonomous platforms. It's not so simple or easy as that. What we are trying to do is to develop a series of technical parameters that can be programmed into a system architecture that regulate autonomous functions. 
And the blister idea actually came up when Colonel Coppella and I were having a conversation. Again, it's just an informal conversation between us about the AI and the law of conflict. And we both knew that the rules of engagement is always used to execute military missions in compliance with legal requirements and policy demands. And we started thinking about how the use of autonomous systems can be integrated into the rules of engagement. Then Colonel Coppella suggested, well, we flip this around. Why don't we incorporate the rules of engagement into autonomous systems themselves rather than the other way around? And I thought, well, that's an interesting and fascinating thought. And it was while pursuing it as the potential for a big research project. And so when you're talking rules of engagement, oftentimes the rules of engagement include both policy and law. Policy shifts all the time. I mean, it would be, how do you, how do you address for the policy shifts if you're actually implementing the ROE into the, the machines themselves? Well, it's a technical parameters. So huh. that can be adjustable depending on what we consider to be important considerations uh, to incorporate that policy, new policy demand. But the actual sort of foundational technical parameters need to be put in place. That's based on algorithms, but the data itself could be adjustable any time. So let me ask you, Chris. So one of the things I don't disagree that it's a not a legal constraint, but a technical parameter to try to enforce the principle of distinction in a machine. Yet I do find it difficult because the principle of distinction very clearly lays out in, in international law that states have an obligation to distinguish between civilians and combatants and military objectives and civilian objects and only target those things that are military objectives. Yet the principle of distinction has been increasingly blurred in the last 20 or 30 years, making it extraordinarily difficult to distinguish between a civilian and a combatant or a civilian that's directly participating in hostilities and a civilian that's not. And so the idea, and it's been so difficult that our own human actors have a very difficult time in discerning between the, the two. Is it realistic, really, to say that a machine, even with the proper inputs, could make those type of fine discernments? We, we believe so. And again, it's not, it's a... We see this as a teaming aspect, right? The, the agent is not necessarily operating on its own and implementing a rules of engagement card, much like a soldier would at a checkpoint, right? The agent has these technical parameters that can help it. When you say agent, what do you So a, a system, a, 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 an autonomous system can, let's say it's a teammate to the soldier, right? Maybe they're both men in the checkpoint and they're going through their, their rules of engagement checklist, right? Somebody is approaching the... The, someone's approaching the checkpoint. And again, with, with an autonomous system, it can take more, more risk than a soldier would, right? It doesn't have to necessarily use a lethal, a lethal mechanism. And maybe in this rules of engagement construct where we do not allow the autonomous system to engage lethally, right? That's something that can be, that we can, we can prevent, right? So there, and there's, there's quite a bit, as we know, within rules of engagement that lead up to a lethal engagement. So you could basically program in escalation of force measures. Absolutely. And it seems that would seem advantageous compared to a human actor because you eliminate emotion. Emotion and fear and uncertainty and fatigue and a number of other things. Chris, how is this work generating discussions with cadets in the classroom or with internal partners across the academy or 
external actors across. But of course, I'm most I'm primarily focused on developing the cadets in the classroom and helping them be those sophisticated right. thinkers we need. So we you know we bring these discussions into our into our traditional engineering courses. We've been working with PY201, our philosophy course that the, the sophomores take. Of course, into Hitoshi's talked with his students. So there's that ability to bring these discussions into the classroom is paramount, right? Just to be able to to engage with the kids because we they, we tell them all the time they are these capabilities. They are going to see them as as maybe not as platoon leaders, but as company commanders, battalion commanders, and having to make decisions with these types of capabilities. Do you see it that way, Hitoshi? Do you see that today's cadets are going to be are going to have to be comfortable with this type of technology when they execute military operations? Absolutely, yeah, it's inevitable. It's already coming. Even the soldiers operating some kind of devices, some of its operations. And with the rise of the drones, particularly in the conflict in Ukraine, and also the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2020, it's quite clear, it's quite clear. This is the essential, essential tools for the military to fight and win the future battles. So um, they have to feel comfortable, they have to be confident, and commanders, most importantly, must have a trust in the ability of those devices and systems to operate lawfully and in the way they expect to behave. How do you, Chris, think this works for a, a commander? Because commanders have historically had discretion to make decisions and command authority and responsibilities. Again, at that, we call it the, I'm putting air quotes, tip of the spear. But there's expectations that that's why they've been their commanders. It's expectation that they make those decisions there's that art of command, and it seems that you may be pulling, these machines may be pulling some of that away from the commander and responsibly might, might actually lie at a, at a much earlier stage in, in either development or acquisition or whatever. Is that true or false? Do you see it that way? We want commanders to feel that there is the, the benefit of, of having autonomous systems, right? If it's a robotic combat vehicle, if it's a short-range recon, a small, a small drone, and, or multiple drones that are, that are replacing a lot of the legacy systems that we've seen over the last 20 years. We, don't, we do not want them locked up in a, in a Connex or in a large container and not being used. So it's really for the research and development community to make sure that, that we can field them, that they can be value-add, right? If, they're, if it takes three operators to, to operate the drone, then that's probably not not the direction we need to be going. But do you see this as complementing commanders and their authorities versus replacing? There should not be a concern of them losing maybe, okay, well, if we have these these autonomous systems are, are potentially replacing soldiers, right, that it's it, it's still, it, it's it's increasingly complex and increasingly technical where they 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 should see it as okay hey these are my this is my formation and these are my this is my team to to execute the mission really how they how they do it now it's just different equipment and different capabilities and and to this question hitoshi you brought up about drones and the debate over the ability to export force away from hot battlefields and the discussion about that dehumanizes warfare, which incentivizes the use of force. Do you, do you see the same with this, that the use of autonomous weapons would dehumanize and disconnect the, the human element from warfare such that it actually could potentially increase violence? Oh, the drones is already in use um, in various um, combat situations. Um, and, but ultimately, the decision has to be made uh, at the very high level in the political circles. They are the ones who make decisions. 
But I do not think that the, the, the ability to project fools remotely would change their calculation so much. In essence, they would be looking at the actual outcome, what's going to happen to the country, to the populations, and ultimately they want to influence the public view of the potential adversaries or the enemy state so that they can engage and create a favorable situation through the use of military forces. That essence never would, would never ever change, no matter what sort of the technologies or equipment is going to be used. So where do you see us in 20 years, Chris? I'll be retired, <laughs> is, is my plan, but you're, no. You're going to be recalled. <laughs> recalled to active duty. I'll be 85 in 20 years. No, so it's, you know, we see the, these ideas about, about the singularity, right? So I think it's, what, seven years, right? Seven years from now. And I'm not, I don't think we're anywhere near there where machine intelligence exceeds our own. But as I did mention, the last 20 years, sure, we've we've seen technical improvements. Of course, the, the tank that we were on is not much different. It was not much different from now than it was 20 years ago. But I think the next 20 years, we're going to see a much more, a, a greater acceleration than we have in the, in the last 20. The nations that are able to, yeah, to leverage the, the technologies and to, and, and to use them to achieve overmatch, to deter aggressors, to deter states is, is going to be essential. And, and again, we want to develop these systems to be to be reliable, to be to achieve greater proportionality, to achieve a better better distinction, less less human suffering. Right? I mean, twenty years from now, there's a good chance that it will be illegal to fire a traditional artillery round because it's once it leaves the tube, it's never coming back. Right? There's no way to 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 recall it to to render it inert. Right? So centrifuge munitions, which we see now. Right, which are are being debated as a autonomous weapon, right, are only achieving a smaller effect and a more distinct effect. So we're going to see that more. And I think twenty years from now, it could be illegal to use a a, a round that just like it would be for not using a precision guided munition from a from an aircraft, right? That, that is that's not happening anymore. I would say from ground forces using traditional artillery that that are not centrifuges are going is going to be a war crime. So that's an interesting, and I'm, I'm, we're wrapping up here, but that's an interesting segue. That's a humanitarian argument, which is exactly what those who are going for an absolute prohibition on these weapons believe they're making. But is their humanitarian efforts short-sighted in comparison to what Chris just laid out in your opinion, Hitoshi? Mm. I think this is the way to increase the humanitarian benefit. I think in 10 years' time, I don't know how many people are still seeing the lethal autonomous weapons as an issue and consider seriously banning that type of weapon because this is the, this is the, this is the path we'll be going down and this is the direction we are heading with the advancement of technologies and the military necessity and the humanitarian considerations. So one of the things that I talk about West Point is the intellectual engine. And really that's the intellectual engine of the entire army's innovation ecosystem. And, and what's driving that the intellectual engine that is West Point is interdisciplinary work. And so it's really encouraging to see experts from different fields and disciplines come together to work on a topic. How has, and I'll ask each of you, so Chris, how has your collaboration with Hitoshi and the Lieber Institute helped refine or change how you have viewed this problem? Yeah, it, 
it's really important for for all the all of these disciplines, the, the STEM disciplines, the humanities disciplines, to, to work together to to answer these problems. And he's Hitoshi's going to see it on a different lens than I do. I see it from, of course, from the technical lens, and maybe not necessarily considering aspects of international humanitarian law or low act that he and rules of engagement that and that he's seeing and he's bringing that expertise into the discussion so it's really important to engage outside of our our own disciplines and and, and work with others yeah how about toshi how about your work with chris how has it changed how you viewed this uh, this topic so in in, in many in many ways, um, at the conversation with chris connor Coppella and his team at the research Robotic Research Center really reinforced what I thought would be the case when I'm dealing with a particular legal issue. And it's great because whenever I need some technical input on something that needs to be confirmed for a particular legal argument or analysis, I can just simply ring him up. I can simply just email him and asking him to check, do you think this is correct? Is this right? And he can instantaneously or he can immediately respond to questions. That that's a real opportunity. That's a very precious opportunity for me, and I'm sure that for many legal academics out there. And we have that luxury of a collaboration here. And I and I think that's the the point, which is to break down the silos and start to do this interdisciplinary work so that we can start to solve the complicated problems, not in a myopic way, but in a more holistic way. And that's the only way we will solve the problems. All right, gentlemen, I'd like to thank both of you for participating. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. I'd also uh, say, please be sure to tune in to the Inside West Point Ideas That Impact podcast next month. Remember, you can find this podcast as well as the other podcast journals and books hosted or published by the West Point Press at westpointpress.com. And until next time.